If you were in charge of finding a speaker for your church conference, who would you pick? If you were a business leader and you were trying to think of someone who could teach on what it means to lead, which of these two men would you pick? I told you that the first man is the prophet Jeremiah. Faithful servant of God, author of the book of Jeremiah, found the word of God, and one who not only thought he was speaking the word of God, he truly was. And what if I told you that the second man was a man named Crackle Dollar, a purveyor of the false prosperity gospel, a noted false teacher, when he's actually been investigated recently by the U.S. Senate for potential financial fraud. Would that surprise you all? Would it change the way that you think about success? Would it change the way that you think about success in ministry? I would argue that it should. And that's the really interesting thing about the Word of God, is that oftentimes it takes the way we would normally think. For any objective worldly thing, of course we would say that the second man was more successful. Right? He's able to gather, to garner millions of followers. He's able to do all of these great things. We would say from a worldly standpoint, well, of course he's more successful. When you look at the Word of God, and this is what's interesting about the Word of God, it often takes the way that we think and then turns everything on its head. It's upside down. In fact, that's one of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus takes all these things that we thought we knew, and then he flips it upside down. And that's exactly what he does here in Revelation 3. As we look at the church in Philadelphia, I'm convinced that as we begin to think about what is actually success when it comes to Christian ministry, we'll realize that our vision is and his vision of success are often worldly. So again, let's look here. Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. I think this is a really interesting passage. This is the sixth of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So starting here in verse 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of age, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have a little power, and yet you have kept our word and not in my own name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who said that they are Jews and are not, but why? Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept our word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour that is coming in the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write out in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, in Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Philadelphia is one of the two churches in Revelation 2 3. You haven't been here with us. We've been doing a series on Revelation 2 and 3. Seven letters to the seven churches. Philadelphia is one of two churches that received no correction. Most of the letters Jesus spoke gives some sort of condemnation or praise and then he corrects. In some cases, he only corrects. And on two occasions, he only gives praise. It's the church of Philadelphia and the church of Smyrna. There's some similarity between the two. Both apparently were experiencing some pretty intense per- uh, persecution and opposition from the Jews. And both were facing the reality of more difficulty to come. But the way that Jesus addresses the church at Philadelphia is unique. It's different than the way he addresses the church at Smyrna. Now I think verse 8 is the key to this passage. Verse 8 is the key. So let's look carefully at that verse. Verse 8. I know your works, so I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have a little power, 
and you can go to check my order and have not denied my name. So the first part of that verse, that's what we'll come back to, is the last line. I know that you have a little power, and that you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I think this is interesting, because Jesus commends them. He knows that they have a little power, but they have kept his word, and they have not denied his name. From everything we know about the church of Philadelphia, their numbers were small. They were a very small church, and they had very little influence in the city. And yet Jesus commends them. He praises them. He offers no correction. They weren't influential. They weren't large in number. But what they were is faithful. And as he does that, as he commends them, as he offers them up as one of two churches that receive no correction, I would argue that it should radically change the way we think about success. In ministry in the church, but also in our own individual lives. Because I think as we see here in Philadelphia, success is not measured by the crowds. Success is not measured by influence. It's not measured by popularity. Success in the Christian life, in the Christian ministry, is measured by faithfulness. Faithfulness to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and faithfulness to the person of Jesus. And listen, the way that he is redefining success here, I think it has implications for both us as a congregation and for you as individuals and for me as an individual. So let's just start by talking about the idea of how this has implications for us as a congregation. Our goal as a church cannot be to gain more members. That's the primary goal. That's the primary goal. Our primary goal cannot be to gain more influence in the community. Our primary goal cannot be to make sure that those around us have a favorable opinion of us. Our primary goal must be faithfulness to the message of Jesus Christ and faithfulness to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if we do that, is it possible that we'll grow numbers? Is it possible that we'll grow influence in the community? Is it, is it possible that we'll even garner favor from people? Well, yeah, of course it's possible. Right? This, this happens to churches all around the world all the time. You hear about this. But they're faithful and they God blesses them with numbers and favor and, and influence. But is it also possible that we can do all those things and we can be like Philadelphia and have little influence and little favor with the people? Well, yes, it is. It's entirely possible. The point is that success in ministry is measured by faithfulness. And so we cannot make those other things our goals because they're fleeting and ultimately they're up to God. But what our goal must be as a church is first and foremost to be steadfast in proclaiming the same message over and over, and to be steadfast in following that person, Jesus. That must be our goal. And whatever happens with the rest of this stuff, we leave that up to God. Our goal as a church is to proclaim the message of hope that's found in Jesus Christ, that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior. That if any person ever comes to this church or ever involved in the ministry of our church, that they should hear over and over that there is hope found in one person, found in Jesus Christ. And that even if you're here today, if you do not know Jesus, we would proclaim the same message, that there is still hope for you. Whatever it is that brought you here today, there is still hope. If you will just repent of your sins and trust Christ, you can be saved. As a church, we must faithfully proclaim that message over and over. Because as we've said over and over, it's not only the message that saves, it's the message that will inspire us to live differently. And so we must again and again preach what this word says. We must be faithful to hold on to Jesus and faithful to hold on to the person of Jesus and faithful to hold on to his message. 
And I think this is actually how Jesus conducted news. I don't think that Jesus was interested in garnering a huge crowds. He's more interested in being faithful to the Father and faithful to the message that he can give. In fact, to illustrate that, let's look at a story that I think is pretty fascinating in John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you turn back to John 6, verse 60. If you don't have your Bible, let's find listen along. John 6, verse 60. And so what I'm arguing here is that in this passage, we see that Jesus was going for the same thing, faithfulness. In fact, I think this is a fascinating passage. There's some really complex things that Jesus is teaching here, and that's not what we're focusing on today. We just want to look at Jesus' reaction. Right, so we're going to pick it up in verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. You can listen to it. But Jesus, knowing himself and his disciples were growing about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man sinning toward you with the floor? Is the Spirit of his life, the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless I'm praying to God the Father. Right, so that's obviously pretty complex in the teaching. But verses 66 and 67 are what I was thinking of this After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer were walking. So let me pause here just for a second. I think that if we were in Jesus' shoes here, I would guess that most of us, if we saw that our disciples were leaving, we would probably try to encourage them to come back. We'd probably say, hold on, you guys just don't understand what I'm saying. Let me explain it again. With the very least, you would think that you would turn to the 12 and you would say to them, listen, you guys know. You guys know what I'm trying to say. Right? Follow me. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 67. And this is really important. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This is really interesting because everyone's leaving. He turns to the 12 and he doesn't beg them to stay. Instead, he says, You want to go also. I think it reminds us that Jesus was far more concerned with faithfulness to the message and faithfulness to the task that the Father gave him than he was not a slave to the wings of the crowd. He was going to do what he was sent to do. And it wasn't that he was trying to garner a lot of attention, it's that he was trying to be. Now, just for the sake of Christian story, let's look at how in verse 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So again, the reason why we're reading that story is not to try to parse everything Jesus is saying, but this to show that he was not concerned with success in the same way that we think of success. He was concerned with being faithful to the message of God. And we see the same thing in the Apostle Paul. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 2. Again, if you're not the Bible, it's okay. You can still come on. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. We see Paul taking the same approach. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. This is Paul talking. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come for any to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to have nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. That your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So his goal here for Christians too is not to win people over with a great show or with a persuasive speech. As he says in verse 2, his goal, his goal was to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Or to say it another way, his goal was to be faithful to the message of Christ 
into the person of Christ. This too should be our goal. That should be our goal in the church, to be faithful to the message, to over and over again proclaim Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, and to be faithful to the person of Christ, to make sure that we are holding fast to his command, that we are holding fast to him. As long as we do that, as long as we are faithful to the message and faithful to the person, then from that point, we'll just let the chips fall where they are. And I don't mean that in the sense that we're being fatalistic. I mean that in the sense that we trust God. And we recognize if we're faithful, and we're faithful to claiming the message of Christ, and we're being faithful to the person of Christ, then we'll just trust God with whatever results He feels like our best. Maybe that will mean that this church will grow like a wild. And that people will come and will grow exponentially. Or maybe it will mean that we'll end up looking just like Philadelphia. Either way is okay. Either way is fine. Our goal is to be faithful. To leave the rest of the day. And so here's what I think that means practically for our church. It means that in every ministry that we have here, we should make this our goal to be steadfast to Christ. And to be steadfast to message. So for example, in our children and youth ministry, our primary goal in our children's and youth ministry must be being faithful to the message of Christ and being faithful to the person of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have fun with kids or youth ministry. It doesn't mean that our youth should never go bowling together or that our kids should not do games or, or make crafts or whatever the case is. But what it does mean is this, is that the primary goal is that we as a church, as we educate our children and youth, as we lead them, that we would point them regularly to the message of Christ, that we would be faithful to make sure that they see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, if people who grow up in the if they leave here, and they have lots of great memories about their time in Europe, they have all kinds of fun things that they've done, but they have not regularly been reminded of the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have failed as a church. And oftentimes, I've seen this just from my experience in the churches will prioritize all those fun things because they think that their kids can just have a good experience of being positively about church. And listen, again, we're not opposed to doing something, but what we're saying is what our kids and youth need more than anything is for us to be faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. Because that is the goal. And that attitude should carry over to every single ministry in the church, even ones that may seem less obvious. For example, building and grounds. Even our building ministry to be driven by desire to be faithful to Christ. So, for example, here's, here's one way that looks this stuff out in our congregation. Since we rent a building, oftentimes we're asked, uh, when are we going to get a building of our own? There's nothing wrong with asking that question. But when we ask that question, we must always frame it in this context. Well, having a building help us to be more faithful to the message of Christ and more faithful to the person of Christ. We must always frame it in that way. We can never say, Will this be easier? Will this be more comfortable? And we have to start by saying, will this help us to be more faithful to the message and faithful to the person of Christ? And we can go down the line. Every single ministry that we have here, that is how we must think about it. The preaching ministry. If it ever comes to a point where I stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it ever comes to a point where I stop sharing with you the word of God, if it ever comes to a point where in my own personal life I am not faithful to follow Christ, then I need to go. It's all there is to it. Because at the end of the day, this is the goal of the church. That we would be faithful. We're reminded that what the church of Philadelphia is, that it's not about numbers, that it's not about having lots of power. It's about clinging steadfastly to the message of Jesus Christ. 
and there's a church that should be our goal. That doesn't mean that we don't have other goals. It doesn't mean, for example, that we're not trying to be creative in the way that we minister to our kids and our youth. It doesn't mean we're not trying to be creative in the way that we reach out to the community around us. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to have influence in the community that we're in. But it does mean that we cannot do those things at the expense of faithfulness. It means that faithfulness to Christ is our first and foremost goal. And as I make sure that I share goal not just in the church, but also in individuals. I think as individuals, the goal is the same, to be faithful to the message and the person of Christ. We should desperately, more than we can, want to hear that voice saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. We should want to hear Jesus' voice at the end of our life saying, just that, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so as you think about your life, and you think about the various different roles that you play, let me ask you this. Are you being faithful in those roles to the message and the person of Christ? If you are a parent, your goal, your first and foremost goal, is to be faithfulness. Faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to the message. The first thing that you should want for your kids is that because you are their parents, they have seen over and over and they have heard over and over the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should be your primary goal as a parent. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll necessarily be Christians. Again, we're saved by grace alone, so that's up to God. But it doesn't mean that as a parent, our goal is to over and over and over again help our kids to see the beauty of Christ. And listen, that takes priority over everything else. There may be some things that you really want for your kid. Maybe, for example, you really want them to be socially accepted. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with wanting that for your kids. But, that must take a back seat without being able to see the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And listen, sometimes those two things will be in conflict with each other. Right? Sometimes to follow Christ will mean that you will lose social acceptance. And so you have to make a decision as a parent that what we are going to prioritize is not to help our kids be socially accepted, but to help our kids see that Christ is a great sinner. Or maybe your goal is for them to achieve academically and to get into some great college. And again, there's nothing wrong with that goal, but that cannot take priority over the goal of helping them to see the beauty of Christ. Listen, if, if, if your kid gets into the best college, and yet you have not faithfully reminded them of the importance of turning to Christ in faith, and you have not regularly reminded them of the beauty of what it means to follow Christ, and you have not modeled that for them, then you've missed out on the primary task of being Maybe your desire for them is to be safe and secure. Again, that's a good goal as a parent, but it can't be the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be helping them to see that Christ is worthwhile. And even if that means suffering, it would be far better to suffer than to follow Christ than to not suffer and not follow Christ. So listen, if you're a parent, your first and foremost goal is to be faithful to the message. If you're married, your goal is the same. It's faithfulness. The goal of being married is not to get your spouse to love anymore, to get your spouse to act in a certain way, or even just to partner with your spouse in parenting. But your goal is to be faithful. It's to be faithful to Christ, to regularly point your spouse to the hope that's found in Christ, to regularly love your spouse in the same way that Christ loved you. Now listen, your spouse may or may not respond favorably to that, but that's beside the point. The goal of faithfulness is not to generate results, but rather it's to be faithful. Here's what I mean. We're not faithful as a church so that we can grow in numbers. We're not faithful as parents just so that our kids will become Christians. We're not faithful 
in our marriage just so that our spouses will love us more. Now maybe those things will happen, maybe they won't. Maybe if we're faithful to church and grown members, but maybe not. Maybe if we're faithful as parents, I think we'll come to Christ, maybe not. Maybe if we're faithful in our marriage, our, our spouse will love us more, but maybe not. But the motivation in all these things is that we love Jesus. And that we understand what he did on the cross. And we understand what he sacrificed for us. And we love him. That's why we're faithful. It's not because we want to do so so that we can accomplish something that we're somehow manipulating God. Who is faithful who gave me all these blessings. No, we're faithful to Christ because we love him. And we trust him for the results. We're faithful. And so we're faithful in every area of life. I know some of you who are not married, you don't have kids. And so I would say that this too applies to you. Maybe, for example, in your job, I would say the goal is the same, to be faithful. To do your job in such a way that at the end of the week, every week, you say, this week in my job, I was faithful to the message of Christ and I was faithful to the person of Christ. Faithfulness cannot be sacrificed at the altar of job advancement or boss approval or in the name of getting things done. Being faithful to Christ means that we are faithful to Him in every area, including our jobs. And listen, that, I don't know what that looks like for you in your particular situation. That's something that you have to figure out. But I do know that this is the goal, to be faithful. For those of you who are younger, your students, I would say this, the goal is the same. Don't make fitting in your goal. If you're a middle school, high school student, or college student, don't make fitting in your goal. Don't make popularity the goal. Don't make academic achievement or extracurricular achievement the goal. Make your goal faithfulness. Faithfulness to the message of Christ and the person of Christ, which of course, first and foremost, means that you recognize and turn from your sin and trust in Christ. But steadfastness, devotion, faithfulness, that's the goal. I think the church at Philadelphia reminds us of this. It's going to have little influence. They're not making on they're not making a big dent in the city. And yet they held fast to Jesus' name. And they held fast to the message. And Jesus can do it. It should be a model for us. Now, maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure if this is worth it. Maybe you're thinking, wouldn't it just be better if we had a church that's bigger? Wouldn't it just be better if my kids had a really bright future? Wouldn't it just be better if I had a race in my career? Wouldn't it just be better if everyone accepted me? Is it really worth prioritizing faithfulness over all of these things? I wonder if the church of Philadelphia was asking the same questions. I wonder if they were wondering, is this worthwhile for us to be so small in our influence? Is this worthwhile for us to be so pushed to the edge of society? I wonder if they were wondering, is this worthwhile? Maybe it's possible. I don't know if they were. But what I do know is this. The vast majority of this passage, Jesus is trying to encourage the church of Philadelphia that it is worth it. In fact, that's the tone of this passage. She's encouraging him. He's saying, I know you have little power. But you're being faithful. And he's saying, I want you to continue to do so. And then for the rest of the passage, she offers a promise after promise that if they will be faithful, these things will happen. There are more promises than the church of Philadelphia and any other church in the And I suspect that maybe part of this, he's just trying to encourage them. It is worthwhile. And so some of you today may be wondering, is it really worthwhile? be faithful to Christ and faithful to the message. And the resounding answer of Revelation 3 from the letter of the Church of Philadelphia is yes. Yes, it is. In fact, you offer several different rewards here for those who are faithful. Starting in verse 9, 
says that there will be vindication before him. Verse 9 says this. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but while I hold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now this is the second time in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus has referred to the Jews as belonging to the synagogue of Satan. It's not exactly probably a politically correct thing to say. But here's the point that Jesus is making. He's claiming that these Jews are claiming to be the people of God, but they're not actually the people of God. Because the people of God are those who believe in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying that anyone who does not believe this message, and this is what Ephesians 2 says also, ultimately they are following the Savior. And really, that, that is the case for every person in this room today. Either you are following Jesus, and by following Jesus, I don't mean that you're a cultural Christian, I mean that you are actually following him. You have actually recognized that he is Savior and Lord, that you are actively making a point to follow Jesus Christ. Either you are following Satan, or you are following Satan, or following Jesus or following Satan. <laughs> That's important that we say, Jesus is one of the options. Right? So either you are following Jesus, or you are following Satan. Those are the only two choices. You may think that you're neutral, you're not. Ephesians 2, I think you know Jesus is insinuating here, he's talking about the synagogue of Satan, he's insinuating there's only two options. Either you follow him or you follow Satan. Those are the only two options. And the point that he's making here is that for these Christians in Philadelphia who are maybe tempted to think, well, this is really rough to keep facing persecution, and I'm sure that the Jews were ostracizing them and casting them aside. He's saying, one day, your enemies, this is what he's encouraging the church in Philadelphia, one day your enemies will recognize that you were right. You were right. Right. He says that they will come and bow down. Now this is actually a really interesting flip of the Old Testament passage. In Isaiah chapter 60, there's a prophecy that the nations will come down, and they will come and they will bow down to the people of God. For a long time, the Jews wouldn't believe that this is the Gentiles will come and bow down to them. But now Jesus is flipping that and he's saying, actually, these Jews will come and bow down to the Christians. So the bigger point he's making He's encouraging the church to say, you may have opponents. You may have those who hate you. You may have those who persecute you. But in the end, you will be vindicated. And listen, that should be encouraging for us too. Maybe you feel overwhelmed in your workplace. Maybe you feel overwhelmed in your school. Maybe you feel overwhelmed in your neighborhood by the opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel like everyone will hate you if you boldly and faithfully hold to the person and message of Christ. Listen, I don't think everyone will think, but some might. But the encouragement that we have here is that one day we will be vindicated. In the end, even your opponents will know that Jesus is true. That he is definitively the way, the truth, and the life. And listen, it may not be popular now to follow Jesus. And it may be more popular to follow the ways of Satan. But in the end, those who follow Jesus will be vindicated. Think of this book. I'm sure that there were many in Nazi Germany with the height of Hitler's power felt powerful and right because they were friends or associates of Hitler. I'm sure at the time it felt like this was the right decision. For many, they felt like, well, we should follow Hitler because they'll make us popular and right. But history has shown, right? History has shown that they were tragically wrong. In the same way, it may be more popular to follow the ways of Satan now. 
But in the end, you'll be shown that that was the most foolish choice that we can make. Those who follow Jesus will be vindicated in the end. And so hear me, even if it's not popular enough, even if it puts you on the outskirts of society, even if it pushes you to the side of the I just want you to know it's worth it because in the end you will be vindicated. You will be vindicated. You will be shown that following Jesus was absolutely and unequivocally the right choice. Why would we want to live in a way now that associates us with Satan, even if it seems like an impressive choice? Following Christ in the end of the vindication. So that's one of the reasons Jesus gives here. He says, You will be vindicated in the end. You may not be popular now. He's saying the church is still love you. You are small and influence now. But don't worry, in the end you will be vindicated. He offers up a second reward. He says this, I will spare you from the trial to come. Look at verse 10. He says this in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now some people speculate that this means that he's going to remove the church at Philadelphia. They're thinking that he's referring to some sort of rapture here. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's promising them is that when the wrath of God comes, the final punishment for sin comes, they will be kept spiritually safe. He's not saying that he'll remove them from the difficulties of this life, but he is saying that he will keep them safe spiritually. It's very similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18. In 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul is talking about being rescued, and he says this, The Lord will rescue me, from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I don't think Paul is saying here that God will rescue him physically and keep him from any physical harm. And part of the reason I say that is because by the time Paul was writing second Timothy, he'd already faced tons of physical persecution. So he wasn't under the delusion that to follow Christ meant that he would be kept safe physically. What he was saying is that God would spiritually keep him safe and bring him into the kingdom of God. I think he's saying the same thing the church is filled up here. He's saying, if you will remain faithful, I will keep you safe. And you may have to suffer a little bit now, but I will keep you from the great suffering, the ultimate suffering. The wrath of God will be put out for eternity. He's saying, if you are faithful to me now, I will protect you from that suffering. In other words, he's saying to them, endure a little bit now, and I will keep you from the great suffering that is still to come. So think of it this way. I don't know anyone who likes to go to a doctor and get shots. Uh, maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you enjoy getting shots. I think that's strange personally to have a right? But no one I know likes to go and get shots. But the reason why you go is because although there's a little bit of pain involved in getting shots, it's better than, for example, getting smallpox or getting measles or polio. Right? When we went to Congo, I can't remember what shot we got. I think it was yellow fever. And that shot was really painful. I'd much rather get that shot than get yellow fever. And I don't even know what yellow fever does, but this sounds terrible, right? <laughs> and again, here's the point, right? That the little pain is worth avoiding the greater pain. In the same way, no one likes to be persecuted for Jesus. No one likes to have to suffer on behalf of Jesus. But this is not worth it. Just being faithful to Jesus means that we will avoid the greater pain of suffering the lack of God for all eternity. Doesn't it seem small in comparison? I would say yes. I think that's what Jesus is saying in the church of Philadelphia. He's saying, listen, you may have to endure a little while, but it's small in comparison because I'm going to remove you from the suffering that will come from people who are experiencing the wrath of God. 
and I will remove you. I will protect you. I will bring you safely into the kingdom. And then he offers one last reward, verses 11 and 12, and that says, security in the ages to come. Verse 11 and 12. It says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write him in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. And then just to finish it, he has it here, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's what Jesus promises to those who remain faithful. They will be made a pillar in the temple of God. They will never leave that place. They will keep their time. He will write on them in the name of their God, in the name of the city of God, in the name of his own name. Now, for the people in Philadelphia, these would have been particularly precious promises. Philadelphia was a city that was prospered for quite a while, agriculturally and industry-wise. And then in 1817, there was an earthquake that devastated the city. In fact, a lot of people in Philadelphia had to end up moving out of the city, not only because of the devastation that moved out of the country far away from the city they loved, but also because there were continuous tremors that kept it happening, or that kept happening. And so the devastation was so severe that for five years the Roman Empire decided that the people of the city of Philadelphia didn't have to pay any tributes or taxes. And so in response, for a period of time, the city was actually renamed to the Caesarea in honor of the Empress. So there's this great period of instability where people are being forced to leave the city and their city is being renamed. And then Jesus promises them this. He says, I will make you a pillar of the temple of God. And he says, and you will never leave. And the church of Philadelphia is supposed to be a precious promise. But you will never have to leave. You may have to leave your city. You may have to go a place that you didn't want to. But if you trust in me, there will be a day when you will never leave. Furthermore, he says that he will write on the name of the city of God, which I think is probably some way hurting to the fact that the city was renamed also. The main thing that he's communicating to them is that if you follow me, there is security and stability. There is a sure future that is to come. He's trying to encourage the church. If you will just hold on, whatever difficulty you're facing now, in the end, there will be something far better to come. And listen, I, I would hope that for those of us who are in here today, that would be encouraging for us also. Maybe there's instability in your life right now. Maybe some of you are going through really difficult times. Maybe there's difficulties with your family. Maybe there's difficulties with your work. Maybe there's difficulties with your health. Maybe there's other difficulties that no one even knows about. Maybe the trouble of this world are waiting now. If that's the case, then this passage should be encouraging to you. If you can just hang on, if you can just be faithful, something far better is still to come. The implied in all that, I think, is that Jesus had the power to make his promises come true. That's why I think we should go back to the beginning of the passage, because that's what he's saying to me. Before he makes any of these promises, he talks about how powerful he is. Verse 7, the angel of the church of Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He tells them that he is the Holy One, the true one. These are both reminders of his deity. He says that he is the one who has the key of David who opens and no one can shut, and shuts and no one can open. This idea of the key of David is an idea that comes from Isaiah 22. The basic idea is that the one who has this key 
is in sovereign control of the entire world of us. Because Jesus is saying, He is the one who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Or to the kingdom of heaven. And the door that He opens is no one can shut. The door that He shuts is no one can open. And so when you start to compile all these reasons, you start to see why faithfulness is worthwhile. Right? Faithfulness is worthwhile because one day we'll be vindicated before our enemies. Faithfulness is worthwhile because we will be spared from the wrath to come. Faithfulness is worthwhile because we have the hope of the future. Faithfulness is worthwhile because we are being faithful to the one who has all the power. Now understand this. Faithfulness will not always make sense to the world. Consider the past of Prefro Dollar Jeremiah. Prefro Dollar, the noted false teacher of prosperity gospel, has millions of dollars to his name. He has millions of followers. He has two multi-million dollar homes, expensive cars, a private jet. He has everything that everyone in this world would want. Jeremiah lived in dying exile in the country by himself. In fact, we was kind of speculating that's what happened because he was by himself. He was guessing that he died in exile. He died alone. He died only having two people ever to listen to what he had to say. From the world's perspective, who is the fool? Well, obviously, Jeremiah. But when you consider the amazing promises that Jesus offers here, when you consider the way that he encourages the church to love you, the question is, who is really the fool? The fool is the one who is not faithful to Christ. In the end, I think we have to say this. There's nowhere else that we can go. Remember that John 6 passage that we looked at earlier when Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go also? You remember what Peter said? Peter turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Indeed, I would say this. Where else will we go? Faithfulness may not be flashy. It may not always be easy. It may not be pretty. It may not be respected by the world. But in the end, where else will we go? Jesus is the only one who has the words of eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can make the types of promises that he makes here. Faithfulness to Christ is worthwhile because we are being faithful to him. And following him will never be innocent. So let's make our goal, both as a church and individuals. It's okay for us to want other things, but let's make sure that our ultimate goal is this, that we will be faithful to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. In the end, you will have no regrets. Father, we are thankful, as always, that we're praying that this would be true for us, that we would be faithful to the message of Christ, that we would recognize faithfulness that not only we need to garner more attention, that we'll get bigger crowds, that we'll get respect to the community, but what it does mean is that all the promises that we see in Revelation would be true for us. And so, Father, we are praying and we are asking. We are begging that you would help us to be faithful. We are pleading that you would help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. That you would help us to see the magnificence of the truth of the gospel. And so that we would see the following Christ as your God. But we know that it will not always be easy. And we know that there will be difficulties. But help us be faithful. Help us to live in such a way that the end of our lives we might hear this friend. Well done, my good and faithful.
Jesus in the name of